0: Let's pray. God, I thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, I thank you for the emotion that Linda has as she reads your word, because I know that that comes from a place of experiencing your word coming to life. Seeing it be true that those who are poor in spirit are blessed, that those who mourn are comforted by you. Lord, these words that were read and that we're about to study and look at are living and active. So I pray that you would cause us to feel their effects this morning. I pray that we would think deeply about the truth of God and that you would stir our emotions with a greater affection for you. I pray that you would meet each of us where we're at this morning. Lord, thank you for doing that for me personally through the music this morning, As we sang the truth of God, my heart was stirred with an affection for you. Lord, I pray that that would be true as we look at your word as well. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We pray these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. you may have a seat. Well, Luke and Kendra have a great story about their honeymoon. Luke and Kendra, are you in here? I need to know if you're in here so you, I, you can fact check me. Or I, No, they're not in here. Oh, there's Luke right there. So Kendra is our family ministries director and Luke is her husband. They were married this spring and went on their honeymoon to California. They have this great story of when they were out on their honeymoon, it was a Friday afternoon, they were trying to figure out what to do on this Friday evening, like what can we go see, what can we go enjoy, they, they did hiking, they did all these fun things on their honeymoon and this particular Friday night they were trying to figure out what local attractions are around here, what can we go do and Kendra throws out this idea, let's find a F- Friday night fish fry. How many of you know what a Friday night fish fry is? Put your hand up nice and high. How many of you don't? Put your hand up nice and high. Okay, a few of you don't. Luke had no idea what that meant. Kendra's like, what do you mean you don't know what a Friday night fish fry is? It's where the local pubs, the local bars, the local restaurants, they offer you fried fish and french fries and coleslaw. Everybody knows what a Friday night fish fry is. Luke had no idea. See, Kendra is from a small town in Wisconsin where Friday night fish fries are a thing. Luke is from Minnetonka. Friday night fish fries are not necessarily a thing in Minnetonka because cultures are different. Now, certainly some of you who grew up in Minnetonka, you're probably aware of what a Friday night fish fry is, but the culture of Luke's home, the culture of Luke's friend groups never exposed him to a Friday night fish fry, but for Kendra, they were, they were all too common. She knew a Friday night fish fry well. Culture runs deep, doesn't it? No matter where you're from, there's certain things that that you do, that your family does, that your culture does, that your people do that are unique to you. I mean, people moving into Minnesota or into the Midwest from different countries, they don't know what a Friday night fish fry is. People moving into Minnesota, they don't know what duck, duck, gray duck is, and shame on you. Start saying duck, duck, gray duck. It's not duck, duck, goose. That That doesn't even sound good. It's duck, duck, gray duck. People from Minnesota, we know that it's a hot dish, not a casserole, a hot dish, right? These are cultural things that we know. In fact, I had a friend here from Romania a couple years ago, and we were in a grocery store picking up groceries for the week. We were hanging out together, and so we we load up our grocery cart, get to the checkout line, we pay for everything, and then as we're leaving, I say to to the cashier, I say, have a good one, and we walk away. And my friend from Romania said, have a good one What? What what do you mean? It's like, have a good one what? You just told that guy to have a good one. Have a good one what? I'm like, well, it's just the thing you say. He had no idea what I meant because he's not from our culture. It was different for him. But it's common for us here in Minnesota The reality is, for for as strongly and as prevalent as Minnesota culture is, we all know that there's Minnesota culture, there's Midwest culture, there's American culture, there's there's culture from other different nations and countries and people groups. For as strong as that type of culture is, there's also a certain culture to the kingdom of God. There's a particular way to do things in the kingdom of God. If you step into a different culture and people may look at you and they're like, you're not from around here, are you? You don't get how we do things. You don't get the subtleties. You don't get the assumptions. You don't get the nuance of our culture. In the same way, there's this culture to the kingdom of God. That when we're exposed to Jesus, when we're exposed to his kingdom, there is a particular way that we are to live. There is a particular way that we are to do things. There is a particular way where we are to operate. And it collides with, how we're, with our natural human-bent culture. Right When Brittany and I got married, there was a collision of cultures in that we learned how each other operated, and we both set down some ground rules, and for some reason, my college dorm buddy culture of throwing all of our clothes over the back of a chair, whether they're dirty or clean, and just kind of sorting through it and sniffing it, that wasn't going to fly in my new culture created with my wife. No, you hang your clean clothes up, or you fold them and put them in the dresser. You don't just pile your dirty and clean clothes together like some college boy and, and live here with me. That's not the culture we're creating. In the same way, the culture of heaven clashes with human culture. It it runs contrary to how we are used to doing things, to how we normally operate. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this text. In fact, for the next several weeks, we're going to see the kingdom culture described. Let me do a little review from last week. Last week, we were at the end of chapter 4. Look at it with me. It's on page 809. You're going to need a Bible today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to do a ton of work, so make sure you grab a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, use a pew Bible, bring it home with you if you need to. We're on page 809. little review from last week. Jesus is bursting onto the scene now with his public ministry. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, From this time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then jump down to verse 23. And he went, he, that's Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is coming on the scene here proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That God, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, God in flesh, is now walking among this created earth, among our brokenness, among our, our sinfulness, among The the people walking in darkness, as it says up in verse 16, dwelling in darkness in a land of death, a light has dawned. In all of the dysfunction, in all of the disease, in all of the pain that exists on earth, a taste of heaven has come. A portion of heaven, a picture of heaven has come in a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to expose Mankind to the glorious truth of heaven, to the glorious experience of heaven. Jesus has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so this culture, the culture of heaven, the culture of God's glory, the culture of God's perfection is now colliding with us. With our sin nature, with our natural ways of doing things, with our putting ourselves before others, with our thinking about ourselves before others, with our self-seeking, our self-serving, our want more, add more, collect more, use more, me culture, the kingdom of heaven, which is to serve, is colliding with the kingdom of earth. And Jesus here is setting up the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so that's what we saw last week. And then in verses chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we see that Jesus moves from kind of this crowd. So there's this great crowd following him. Verses 23 through 25, tell us what type of people are following Jesus. Look at it with me. And he went throughout all of Galilee. And actually verses 18 through 22, fishermen are following Jesus. They weren't society's elite. They were not society's powerful and prestigious people. They're were, they were kind of like They were kind of like second-class citizens, fishermen were. So fishermen are following Jesus, and then verse 23 through 25 tells us another type of people were following Jesus. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So who is following him? Diseased people, afflicted people. Verse 24, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Diseased, pained, oppressed by demons, afflicted, epileptics, paralytics, the handicapped, the the outcasts of society, the people who have no power, have no prestige. These are the people following Jesus, and great crowds followed him from Galilee into Capolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So here's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's pulling away from the crowd... And a smaller group of people come after him. It's still, it's still a larger group, I think. He's not, it's not just with the 12 disciples here. Oftentimes we read that into here because we're used to thinking about disciples. There's the 12. Well, disciple just means follower. And in this moment, there's great crowds of people following Jesus. This isn't a secret message to the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. This is a message where he's teaching a larger group of people who are following him what the culture of the kingdom is. Jesus is teaching them about the culture of the kingdom. He pulls away to instruct his followers, this is how things are done around here. If you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is the culture of the kingdom. If you've started a new job before, you've gone through orientation, right? The purpose of that is to give you an idea of how things are done at that workplace. Here's the culture. Here's the expectations. Here's what it looks like to be a part of this company. Or a part of this sports team. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a crowd of people following him. If you're going to lay down your life, if you're going to give up everything and follow me, here's what's expected. So he pulls away and he gives them the Sermon on the Mount, which is in chapters 5 through 7. We're going to study it over the coming months. And in here, he's giving pronouncements and requirements of God's kingdom. So he's, he's laying down the cultural framework for the kingdom of God, and he does this by giving them pronouncements and requirements. Oftentimes, when we read the Beatitudes, which is what we're going to look at this morning, we think that these are, these are conditions that if I can make myself poor or mourn or meek or hungry and thirsty for righteousness or merciful or the rest of them, if I can make myself that— then God will bless me. And their first, before their requirements, their pronouncements. Who is following Jesus? The poor, the afflicted, the sick. He's pronouncing to them, there is hope for you. When the world would throw you away, when the world would discard you because you have nothing good to offer the world, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. Church, this is an encouragement and a reminder to the outcasts of society. Anyone here who may be feeling sick or diseased or pained or or oppressed, the kingdom of God is near. It's a pronouncement to people who are disadvantaged in the world that there's great advantage for them in the kingdom of God. It actually puts at a disadvantage people who have stuff. Many of us in American Western culture, this disadvantages us. Now, it's still available to us, right? This is a pronouncement. It's it's a pronouncement for a type of person. Physically, yes, there's physical poverty, there's physical oppression, there's also spiritual poverty, spiritual oppression. We're going to see that. But Jesus here is pronouncing the culture of the kingdom and he is also giving requirements to the kingdom of God. He's saying, if any, any of you would come and follow after me, here's what's expected. Here's the culture. Here's what's required. He gives us a requirement that is too large for us to attain to. Here's what he does. He pronounces that the humble are blessed, right? That's a pronouncement. He says that. He tells us that here in this passage. And then he also requires humility and righteousness beyond ourselves. Jesus laying down the framework, the, the culture of the kingdom of God. Here's what it is. Here's the type of person that can enter my kingdom, and here's the type of person that receives all of my blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, one of my favorite passages. It says that in Christ we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've been promised heaven, we've been promised eternity, and even here and now, the, hev- the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. Regardless of our earthly circumstances, God has internally, spiritually, and sometimes externally, circumstantially, blessed his people, those who humbly would follow after him. There's also a requirement. So if you aren't poor, if you aren't disadvantaged, if you aren't afflicted, if you aren't oppressed by demons, you're still welcomed in. You're invited in. I mean, Matthew, the author of this book, was not among the poor. He was among the rich. He was taking advantage of the poor to make his money. He was a tax collector. He took advantage of the people who were following Jesus in order to get rich off of them. And God extended his grace to Matthew. Matthew wrote this book, he recorded the teachings of Jesus. And so, what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, All are welcome. There's a unique unique following among the disadvantaged, but all are welcome. And the pronouncement is, if you are humbled before God, you will be blessed by God. And the requirement of you to enter this kingdom, the the required culture among this kingdom, is humility and righteousness, which we're going to see here in the Beatitudes. So let's walk through it. Let's walk through the kingdom culture that Jesus lays out for his followers. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is what is pronounced to us and what is required of us. And and again, even as I say that, remember, this is beyond ourselves, okay? We're going to get to that at the end as as we respond with communion and worship, get to the gospel. So as we go through these eight Beatitudes, don't hear me saying that you need to try harder, right? Right? This is beyond ourselves. This is a gift from God. This is something that he imparts to us that we could never do on our own. So if you are a Christian here this morning, know that this is what is required of you. So therefore, we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. That's Jesus. I'll get to the end even now. It's Jesus. This is all in Jesus. If you're not a follower here this morning, consider how the culture of heaven clashes with the culture of earth and tell me which one you think you should be a part of. Okay? Answer for yourself. Is the the culture of heaven better than the culture of earth? Is it more appealing than the culture of earth? Those are some questions I want you to ask as we go through this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Before we get into the eight here, let me just give you a word about blessing. The Greek word is makarios, and it, it means to be fully satisfied. Some people translate it as happy and they think that it's just a smile on your face or happiness. But, but the better translation and the better understanding is to be fully satisfied. Not because of favorable circumstances, but because of being indwelt by God. By knowing things like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 that says, in Christ we've been given every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have everything. God, your heavenly Father, if you're in Jesus Christ, he's opened up everything to you. And he says it's all yours. I may withhold some for here and now. I may give you some in portions. And you may not experience it all until the next life, but you've been given everything. You have no reason to want. You have no reason to need. For God, your Father, has done everything everything for you and has given everything to you. So a blessed person is one who's fully satisfied, not because of favorable, favorable circumstances, but because they are indwelt by God. To be blessed is to have God's kingdom in your heart. Blessed is the person who is in the world, yet independent of the world. Blessed is the person who is in the world, yet independent of the world. His satisfaction comes from God and not from favorable circumstances. So as we go through this, that's what blessing means. That's what it looks like to be blessed in the kingdom of God. So the first cultural piece that Jesus pronounces and requires is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I'm going to go through each one of these and kind of give just a different phrase for it. Because I think some of us have become so inoculated with these terms I mean, the Beatitudes is one of the most taught on, one of the most known passages in Scripture by people who are both Christians and non-Christians. Many non-Christians are like, oh yeah, these sound great, but they don't really dig in and don't really know what it means. Or many churches teach these as some good moral thing that we should do, but don't understand who Jesus is behind it. And so Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? It means what it says. It says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor? It means to be lacking something. Lacking something that you need. Lacking something that you want. These are the people who are primarily following Jesus. Again, so it's a pronouncement to them. Blessed are you who are lacking. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, you now get me. I'm not playing favorites. I'm not revealing myself to just the rich and to the powerful and to the prestigious. I'm here with you, the poor. So this pronouncement, blessed are the poor, but also this requirement that that anyone who would come into the kingdom of God must recognize that they are a spiritual beggar looking for bread. That that we are needy, that, that we have nothing to contribute, that we have nothing to offer. Remember, Jesus is teaching this in the midst of the poor and the disenfranchised and also the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees think that they will be blessed because they've upheld the law, because they are the religious elite, because they are the privileged children of Abraham. God promised Abraham back in the Old Testament that he would create this nation and and, and this people group, and so because they are the descendants of Abraham, they think they're privileged. They think they're blessed. They think the kingdom of God belongs to them. Jesus here is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not those who've elevated themselves. Not those who, who, who think that they have some good to contribute and offer, and so therefore God will use them. No, the needy, the poor, those without. Those without often are more quick to realize their need for outside help, for outside assistance. And friends, we have a great need for spiritual assistance. Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. Blessed are those who are aware of their neediness. I like how Psalm 103.14 pictures this for us. It says, As for man, his days are like grass, He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. What is man? What is mankind? Like grass, that the wind passes over, it's gone and it knows its place no more. No lasting impression. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who say, what am I other than dust? And if it wasn't for God breathing the breath of life into me, I would be nothing. I am nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who take hope not in their flesh, not in their man-made systems, not in their religious duty. Not in their religious practice. Blessed are the poor, those who are empty, those who are needy, those who are acknowledging that without God they have no good to offer. And so church, let me ask you this morning to to think for yourself. How do you approach God? Do you approach him more like a Pharisee or a Sadducee who thinks, I've got some good theology things figured out. I've been going to church for a long time. I know some big terms. I spend a lot of time in my prayer closet. I spend a lot of time doing doing devotions. I help a lot of people. God's pretty lucky that he's got me on his team. That's not the poor in spirit. Do you approach God more like a Pharisee or a Sadducee, thinking that you've been accepted by what you contribute? Or have you accepted your lot as a beggar? A spiritual beggar looking for bread. I'm broken. I'm humbled. I'm needy. God, without you, I'm nothing. That's the starting point for this kingdom culture. And Jesus gives us this promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that at the right time he would exalt you and lift you up. The second one here is, blessed are those who mourn, verse four, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is showing remorse over sin. So verse three is is cognitive. It's it's knowing that I am a spiritual beggar looking for bread, knowing that I have nothing to offer. Verse four, mourning is is emotional. It's this It's this brokenness over sin. It's a sensitivity to personal sin and the sin of others. Look at how Peter demonstrates mournfulness for us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, after Peter denies Jesus three times. It says, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster will crow, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That's what it means to mourn. It, it, it's this brokenness over sin, sin in us and sin in others. It's this ability to say what I've done is wrong. Who I am is wrong. What is happening is wrong and to actually have the emotion to weep over it and look at the promise. Those who have brokenness over sin, those who mourn over sin, those who like Peter weep bitterly over their sin shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Charles Spurgeon says, our griefs are blessed for they are our points of contact with the divine comforter. If you allow your heart to experience grief, to mourn over sin, to mourn over brokenness, to mourn over wrong, the promise is that God will come and comfort you. In that place of brokenness, God will meet you there. Some of you need to learn how to cry. Really, some of you need how to cry. Blessed are those who mourn, those those who weep over sin, those who show remorse over sin receive blessings in a way where those who shut it up, lock it away, and stuff it do not. I mean, most boys learn not to cry, right? Because what happens when you start crying around your friends as a little kid? They say, Stop acting like a girl, right? And so we teach ourselves how not to cry. And so we lock our emotions up. We, 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 we don't even feel the broken effects over sin because we don't want to show weakness. Weakness, that, that's not the culture of the world. Machoism, manhood, stuffing it aside, not crying. That, that's not the culture of the world. Don't be a babbling, crying fool. That's what girls do. Men, some of you need to learn how to cry. You need to learn how to weep over your sin You need to learn how to weep over the sin of others. Now, on the reverse, and of course these are generalizations, they're not always true, but on the reverse, oftentimes girls learn how to cry, right? They learn how to cry manipulatively to get their way. My two-year-old daughter does this so well. Brittany and I know the difference between Oakley's genuine cries and Oakley's cries for wanting to get what she wants when we tell her no. I don't know how many times in high school, like when... Girls that I went to high school with would get pulled over for speeding or whatever. The common joke was like, well, you just got to cry and then the cop will let you off. He'll feel bad for you. So some of us need to learn how to cry for the right reasons. Not to manipulate God. Not, not to try and... Here's, here's the wonderful thing in the kingdom of God. You cannot manipulate God. I, I'm really good at this. Well, at least try. I'm not good at it because it's impossible. But somewhere in my mind, I think that if I drum up the right emotions or if I, if I say the right things, then God will be more pleased with me and, and he will bless me or he will comfort me or he will do whatever. What we need to know is that, that God knows the genuine cry of a mourner. He can distinguish, distinguish them from the, from the fake cries of a manipulator. God knows. Here, here, here's the promise blessed are those who mourn those who show remorse over sin for they shall be comforted church question is your heart sensitive to and mournful over sin or is it hardened and cynical by sin is your heart sensitive to and mournful over sin or is it hardened by and cynical, hardened and cynical by sin. Third one, the meek. To be meek means to edify others rather than exalting self. Jesus promises here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of earth. Meekness is not a personality trait. It's not kind of quiet, submissive person in the corner who doesn't speak up or doesn't speak their mind. Meekness actually was used of war horses who were trained and broken in, and so they had all the skill and all the strength of a, of a war horse, but it was submitted to their master. That's the, the biblical picture of meekness. When we read this word in our culture, we don't think of that. We think of like kind of quiet, in-the-corner person who never speaks their mind. That's not biblical meekness. Biblical meekness is is. is Edifying others. It's serving others. It's doing what's good for others rather than exalting self. Some of the meekest people that I know are the most loud and robust people. I know I'm thinking of two of them right now. I'm married to one, and I hang out with the other one all the time. Loud, robust, full of life, but edifying, lifting others up. It's not a personality trait. It, it, it's a person who has learned how to keep their strength under control, who has learned how to make others look good rather than exalting themselves. Tim Keller says that humility is thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. This is the idea of meekness. It's, it's seeing that others are lifted up. Look at how it tells us this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Meekness is the opposite of being haughty. Zephaniah says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. This is God speaking out against Israel. You will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. See, this is what it means, that the meek shall inherit the earth. I will remove the haughty ones and I will leave in your midst the humble and the lonely. The the meek shall inherit the earth. Those who have learned how to exalt others and ultimately how to exalt Christ will inherit the earth. You're not thinking about yourself first, you're thinking about others, church. Let me ask you, do you seek to honor others or honor self? Self-assessment question for you. Do you seek more so to honor others, to edify others, to lift them up, to encourage them, or to exalt yourself so that you would get personal praise and glory? The fourth kingdom culture characteristic here is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6. For they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. This is those who are hungry for justice. They're concerned with justice. They're concerned with righteousness, which means right living. It's personal and corporate justice. Those who are personally, have this personal hunger to be right with God. Do you long to be right with God? Are you thirsty to be right with God? You can. You are In Jesus, okay? This is what the passage is saying. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are concerned about personal righteousness and also corporate righteousness. So personal righteousness is getting right with God. Corporate righteousness is doing right by God. That's caring for others. That's caring for the people that were following him, the hurt, lost, broken, sick, afflicted, epileptics, oppressed, paralytics. Doing right by God, doing justice, is to care for them. Micah 6.8 prophesies it this way, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, the the culture of the world is get, use, acquire, collect. How can I use people to get more of what I want? How can I exploit people's weaknesses to, to exalt myself? The culture of the kingdom is to be hungry for righteousness, hungry for justice. It's not to use others to get more work done so that you can get to a higher pay bracket. It's actually to say, how how do I lift others up so that they can contribute and be in the same pay bracket? How can I disadvantage myself for the sake of others? That's a way to think about justice and righteousness. Church, do your pursuits show that you're hungry and thirsty for getting right with God and for doing right to others? Just an honest assessment question for yourself. Or do your pursuits show that you're you're more hungry and thirsty for acquiring stuff, acquiring comfort, acquiring security, acquiring pleasure for self? The fifth cultural piece is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To be merciful, is it's, it's similar to meekness. It's strength under control and used for good. I mean, if you've ever, ever been like wrestling with an older, older uncle, what do you say? Uncle, right? You tap out, cry for mercy. Have you heard these terms? Mercy is strength. Unlike most of these other Beatitudes, this is actually about strength. So Jesus here is promising those who are strong show mercy. You have to be strong to show mercy. Mercy requires strength. It requires you being, having a position of power over somebody. So Jesus here is saying, if you're a person who has a position of power over people, can you keep that strength? Can you keep that power under control and use it for good? Look at how Deuteronomy 4.31 shows us the picture of mercy. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not leave you or destroy you. That's the key, destroy you, implying he can. He has power over us, but he shows us mercy. So Jesus comes and he says, those who have power... Those who have strength, humble yourself, use that power, use that strength, keep it under control and use it for good. Church, a self-assessment question. Do you lord power, position, prestige over people or do you use it for their good? Do you, do you, do you catapult it forward for their good? Oh, the next ones are so Good. But I think I'm going to pause. We're on number five. We have three more. I think I'm going to pause and come back to them next week because they're so good. <laughs> pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart? Oh, I can't. That, that was my favorite one. I wanted to spend the most time there, but we're running out of time here. So I'm going to pause. Next week, we're going to come back to pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted and reviled, okay? So next week, that's what you can expect. We'll, we'll pick up the kingdom culture again next Sunday, and we'll cover pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted and reviled. Um, to close this down, I, I had a great ending with this incredible verse that would bring us to the gospel, but we'll save it for next week. So let's see, what is our gospel point for today? <laughs> it's that this is impossible for us to do on our own, is it not? I mean, let's, let's come back to that. Requirements. Jesus is giving us pronouncements. This is true. This is what, what, what is true of my kingdom and also requirements. If you would follow after me, here's how you must live your life. You must be humble and righteous, but this humility and righteousness is beyond ourselves. We are in desperate need for God to produce in us what we could not produce on our own. So as we track through this kingdom culture, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount over the coming weeks and possibly months, just know that God is graciously producing things in you that you cannot produce on your own. When I showed up this morning, I I didn't feel like worshiping. I don't know why. I I, I prayed. I woke up early this morning and I prayed and I asked and then I came in here as the worship team was practicing and just like that, some of the words that they were singing, I don't even remember in the moment which words it was, but I heard I thought, that is true of God? Oh my word, I get to sing that with my family today? I didn't do that on my own. God produced that in me. And I had this incredible time of worship because God produces in us what we could not produce on our own. So church, as we think about the Sermon of the Mount here, as we think about the Beatitudes attitudes. Would you come to God as a poor beggar looking for bread? Would you ask God to enable you to mourn, to show remorse over your sin and over the sin that's wreaking havoc in the world? Would you come to Him in meekness or or ask Him to produce in you meekness? Meekness and mercy, strength under control. Would, would you beg him? God, we beg you now to make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We want to be satisfied. All of our pursuits in life are seeking satisfaction. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would satisfy us in you and you alone as we respond this morning with singing and communion. I pray that as we take the elements, as we take the cracker, and as we take the cup, that, that you would supernaturally use those elements to make us hungry and thirsty for more of you. We pray these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen.